Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. We introduce each chapter with a quote that says that every Jew has a portion in the world to come. Every Jew has a portion in the world to come. As it says, you are the plantings of my efforts, the work of my hands, you will inherit the land forever. And that's interpreted to mean the, uh, the time of the resurrection, the world to come. Many years ago, the Rebbe, before he became Rebbe, was uh, an editor of a uh, Torah magazine. And he responded, as an editor, he responded to the questions people wrote in. Letters to the editor. One of the letters was from a well-known rabbi who says that he heard that Hasidim claim that everyone has a portion in the world to come, even the most sinful. And he wants to know where does that come from? Because there are so many statements in various places in the Talmud and the other where it specifically and clearly says that the righteous have a portion in the world to come, but not the sinful. So the Rebbe responds to that question. He says, first of all, the source that Hasidim quote is from the Ari, in which he writes that every Jew will have a portion in the world to come, even the most sinful. Now, where does that statement come from? What is it based on? So here's uh, an example of Talmudic reasoning or scholarship. The Rebbe says, first of all, this statement, every Jew has a portion in the world to come, it comes from a Mishnah, where the Mishnah says, every Jew has a portion in the world to come, because as it is written, etc., etc., and these are the ones who have no portion in the world to come, and it enumerates certain individuals, some of the kings of Israel, of ancient days, who were very sinful, they have no portion in the world to come. Question would be, the wording of the Mishnah is precise and exact. The Mishnah says, all Jews have a portion in the world to come. And these are the ones who don't. Well, <laughs> then it's not all Jews. So we know that there are, there, there's a, a usage of, of language where it says everybody and then gives you the exceptions. So it's not so unusual to say everyone and then make an amendment because every rule has its exception. So the rule is a rule. Everyone has a portion in the world to come and there are exceptions and these guys don't. However, where there is an exception to the general rule, the Mishnah usually uses the expression chutz, Everyone except. Here, the Mishnah uses a different formula. 
everyone has a portion in the world to come, and these are the ones who don't. That's unusual. What is the reason for that? Again, it should say, everyone has a portion in the world to come, except the following. The Mishnah says, everyone has a portion in the world to come, and these are the ones who don't. That's unusual. So the Rebbe says, first of all, let's take a look at the possibility of everyone having a portion in the world to come. First of all, when we say world to come, we could mean one of two things. We're either referring to paradise, Gan Eden, which is where the soul goes when it leaves the body. It is sometimes called the world to come because it's at the end of life. Then there's another possible reference, and that is that when we say world to come, we're talking about this world on earth, but after Mashiach comes, which is literally the world to come, not another world. This world, but in a future time. When we say everyone has a portion in the world to come, we are not talking about heaven. We're talking about this world after Moshiach when everyone will be resurrected. Because in heaven, it is in fact true that not everyone is invited. Not everyone gets to go to heaven. And even if you do go to heaven, it's not the same for all people. You know, there's the front seat, box seat, bleachers. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't all sit together because it depends on your righteousness and on your virtue and so on. The statement, all Jews have a portion in the world to come, cannot be referring to heaven. It's referring to this world at the time of the resurrection. What about those people who are not deserving and for whatever reason don't have a portion in the world to come? So, there is a possibility that even someone who was so sinful that they have lost their portion in the world to come can re regain it simply by repenting. If a person repents, if a person does tshuva, then just as other punishments are removed, are, are canceled, the punishment of not having a portion in the world to come is also removed. And he regains his portion in the world to come. What about a person who did not, during his lifetime, actually change his ways and become righteous? Rambam writes that a person on his deathbed, who in his heart of hearts regrets his sins, is forgiven for all of his sins. That is considered repentance and tshuva, and the sins will never be mentioned. So he regains his portion in the world to come simply by regretting his sins, even though it's already the end of his life and he doesn't have a chance to, to live righteously, to do mitzvahs. What about a person who did not actually change his ways and become righteous, and on his deathbed he didn't regret? 
is there any hope for such a person? The Rebbe says, we find in many places in the Talmud, that a child can do more for a father than the father can do for the child. Which means, when a father is in heaven and the son is on earth, obviously the father can do good things for the child, pull some strings, you know. But the child can do more from the, for the father than the father can do for the child. For example, the mitzvahs that the son does can be credited to the father. The father can affect the son through prayer. If the, if the father in heaven prays for his son, it can have a good effect on the son, bring good things for the son. But the son, even if he doesn't pray for his father, but he does mitzvahs, and those mitzvahs can be credited to the father. Like, for example, giving charity. If he gives charity for his father, it certainly has a great effect. If he prays for his father, it certainly has a great effect. What about someone who never repented, never regretted, and doesn't have children who are righteous, who can credit his account up in heaven. Even others, strangers, through their prayers can affect the change for the soul in heaven and regain for them the portion in the world to come. A fascinating example. There was a sage who, uh, in the times of the, uh, of the Medrash, of the Mishnah, who became a heretic. He was one of the great sages. He was, uh, I think, the teacher of Reb Meir. And he, he became a heretic. He stopped believing. His name was Elisha. And the Gemara says that he has no portion in the world to come. However, another sage came along, Rabbi Yochanan, and he somehow pleaded the case of this other sage and corrected the problem, and he now has a portion in the world to come. So you see, first of all, that even a stranger, they were not related, but one sage prayed for another and fixed it so that he has a portion in the world to come. What's interesting is that this particular sage, Rabbi Yechanan, was the one who first of all bothered to pray for him and succeeded in his prayers, whereas other sages, his own students and so on, didn't, didn't make any, any special effort for him. So the Rebbe explains it in a fascinating fashion. The Gemara says that one of the uh, causes that led to Elisha's fall was that when his mother was pregnant with him, she passed an a temple where they worshipped idols. And they were roasting some meat. And she developed a craving for that meat. But it was not non-kosher meat. Now, according to the Talmud, uh, a desire or a craving in a pregnant woman is a, is a life and death issue. And so all, all commandments are canceled 
and the woman has to have what she craves or the child will suffer. So they gave her that kind of meat. Now, although it was permissible under the circumstances, it was a matter of life and death, the unholiness of the meat remained and it affected her child so that he had a tendency towards sinfulness. And that's what contributed to his fall. Now, that argument was a defense in favor of Elisha saying that it wasn't really his fault. It was, uh, it was, it was genetic. It was, he was born that way. And so most of the sages were content with that justification, with that argument on his behalf. Problem was that there was another sage, Rabbi Yechanan, who had exactly the same experience. When his mother was pregnant with him, she also developed a craving for something non-kosher, and she had to have it, so she ate it, and it didn't affect him adversely at all. This Rabbi Yechanan is the one who prayed for Elisha. Why? Because he felt that his own success condemned Elisha. Here we're saying that his sins can be justified on the basis of the fact that his mother ate something non-kosher. Rabbi Yechanan's success deflated that argument. Just because your mother ate something non-kosher doesn't mean you have to become sinful. See? My mother did that. I'm not sinful. So he, in a sense, he felt like he was condemning Elisha, destroying the argument on his behalf. And so he felt personally responsible to pray for him. And because he himself went through the experience and could have been used as an argument against Elisha, and yet he went and pleaded for Elisha, that's why his prayers were particularly successful. Just a fascinating little side note. So now we see that a person who was sinful all his life can actually regain his portion in the world to come and be counted among the righteous. How can that happen? If he repents, if he regrets, even though he had no time to, uh, to actually change his lifestyle, or if he has children who do mitzvahs on his behalf, give tzedakah on his behalf, or even a stranger who prays for him or gives tzedakah for him can reclaim for him the, uh, the portion in the world to come. What if none of the above happens? The guy is really a loser. Doesn't have a friend, doesn't have a child, nothing. The Rebbe finds that a person who had lost his portion in the world to come and was defined as a totally wicked person, he has no portion in the world to come if there is no other punishment, if that's the only punishment. But if there's another punishment, then the other punishment takes the brunt of the uh, sinfulness, and he does have his portion in the world to come. For example, the Rebbe says there was a king uh, in Israel who was mentioned in the Mishnah as one of those who do not have a portion in the world to come. His name was Menashe. He was the king of Israel at the time when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Judea 
and Israel, Yehuda and, and Yisrael. He was the king of Yisrael, and he put idols all over the country, including in the temple, in the Beis HaMikdash. Very sinful, uh, sinned himself and caused others to sin, and that's one of the kinds of people who have no portion in the world to come. Yet, we find that there was another king who was even worse, a king called Yehoiakim. He was even more sinful than Menashe. And yet, we're told that he has a portion in the world to come because at his burial, it was a very embarrassing or a degrading experience. He was buried like a mule. It was an it was undignified burial. And that embarrassment or that shame constituted punishment for his sins, and he thereby has a portion in the world to come, even though he was more sinful than Menashe. So we see that if a person is punished in some other way, then he retains or regains his portion in the world to come. So now the statement that the wicked have no portion in the world to come has become a very limited application. That's only if he doesn't do tshuva. It's only if he doesn't regret his sins. It's only if he doesn't have children who are uh, gain, gaining merit for him. And it's only if he doesn't have friends who are praying for him. And it's only if he didn't suffer any other kind of punishment. The Rebbe then finds in, uh, in the Talmud, in the, in the Gemara, that Menashe himself and his gang... Uh, they regained their portion in the world to come because many years after they had died, there was a fire in Israel and their graves, their bodies, were consumed by the fire. Once they were consumed by the fire, their bones were consumed, then they regained their portion in the world to come because that took the place of the uh, excommunication from the world to come. The difference between Yehoiakim, who has a portion in the world to come and is not mentioned in the Mishnah, and Yeravam, who is mentioned in the Mishnah as one who does not have a portion in the world to come, but regained it when his body was consumed by the fire. The difference, of course, is that until the fire, which was a couple of hundred years, he was excluded from the world to come. He regained it after having lost it. So the Mishnah was correct in saying they have no portion in the world to come because that was before the fire. Whereas Yehoiakim, at his funeral, he suffered the embarrassment. And so he never actually lost his portion in the world to come, even though he deserved to. Okay, so now we see that no matter how sinful a person is, and even if they have already lost their portion in the world to come, it is possible for them to regain it and reclaim it. Now, the Rebbe finds indication and proof, text proofs, that not only is it possible, but that it will, in fact, happen. That every Jew, even the most sinful, will regain their portion in the world to come. Where do we find that? Rambam quotes as a ruling, as a halacha, that the Torah promises that in the end of our long exile, we will repent. 
we will do tshuva. And that will bring an end to the exile. And unless, unless we think that that is referring to the Jewish people as a whole, but not necessarily to each individual, the, uh, the Gemara quotes from the Song of Songs that the wicked and the righteous will both rejoice together because even the wicked are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate is full of seeds. So we see that it is not a statement about the Jewish people as a whole, but at each individual. Let me give you the exact words where Rashi translates, even the sinful, all of them, seek godliness. They want to be close to God. And they have many merits because even the sinful are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate is full of seeds. So, not only do we find that it's possible for every Jew to have a portion in the world to come, but that it actually will happen in the end of days. That's all from Talmud. Now we also find an actual verse in Scripture, in the Torah, in Shmuel Beis, in Samuel, where it says, V'choshav machshoves, God thought thoughts, planned so that even those who are rejected will not be rejected. And here's how it's worded in the, in the halacha. Even the most sinful will eventually repent, either in this incarnation or another incarnation, because the rejected will in the end not be rejected. And in Tanya, he writes, that this is a certainty, that in the end everyone will do tshuva in one incarnation or another because even the rejected cannot be lost. Now, the Rebbe takes it a step further. Not only is it possible, not only will it happen, it must happen. Why must it happen? Here we go into the Kabbalah. I translate it word for word. This is an Emek HaMelech. He writes as follows. The Ata Bonim, and now my sons, Shimuli, listen to me. Yiras Hashem ala Metchem, I will teach you fear of God, the Ahavose and love of Him, and His love for His children. Lomolei Kulahai, why does He bother with the wicked who anger Him all the time, every moment? There are two answers to this question. Number one, even though they are very wicked, but there are sparks of holiness within them, and they are the plantings of God, a part of God, and every part of God is eternal. And these souls carry an impression of God himself. Also, God is proud of his creations, of his people, and therefore, that which God makes and refers to as the work of his hands must live forever and ever and cannot disappear, cannot end. That's the first answer. The second answer is, every Jew is precious to God because of our father Avraham, who prays for every 
one of his descendants. Then in another place he writes as follows, Even the rejected will not be lost or rejected. Why? Because God himself created the world and destroyed them. You know that concept that God created worlds and destroyed them? It's misunderstood, but it says that God created worlds and destroyed them. The meaning of it is that God created worlds that he likes and he created worlds that he doesn't like. The world of holiness, the world of unholiness. In other words, God created light and God created darkness. And because of that, the evil in this world has become so strong that it can actually lead a person to become so sinful as to lose their portion in the world to come. But because God is the cause, he created the, sin, the darkness. He created this uh, possibility of sin. Therefore, he takes responsibility upon himself and he sees to it that no one will be lost forever as a result of their sins. Because it's God who created sin. Fascinating. And that is why every Jew will have a portion in the world to come. God will not allow even the soul of even the sinful to be lost. And in the end of days, through many processes, even the sinful soul will be included or gathered in with the righteous. And that is the meaning of the verse, your nation are all righteous. That means that in the end they must become righteous because God will not abandon even one of them. This writing in the Kabbalah, which is very explicit, is based on a teaching of the Ari, where he writes, Every Jew has a portion of the world to come. It's just that some souls will have their portion immediately, and some only at the end of time. Because God bothers, exerts himself with the sinful to fix them, to correct them. And why? Because they are his plantings and the works of his hands, and therefore they are forever a part of him and cannot be lost. So now we see that not only can every soul have a portion in the world to come, not only will every soul have a portion in the world to come, but every soul must have a portion in the world to come because what are you going to do with them? <laughs> the soul is eternal. Where are you going to put them? Now, the possibility that it stays in hell or in suffering forever, that's not acceptable at all because hell is not forever. So where are you going to put this eternal soul? So it's got to get fixed and it's got to get cleaned up and it has to regain its portion in the world to come. Now, it's even more fascinating. The Rebbe brings a number of quotes that seem to contradict what we're saying, and the Rebbe resolves them. For example, there's a statement in the Gemara, every Jew has a portion in the world to come, and these are the ones who do not. If the Mishnah says that there are those who do not have a portion in the world to come, it's got to be true for somebody. So the Rebbe explains, when we say a portion in the world to come, what we mean is resurrection. Resurrection means the body in which the person sinned will be resurrected and the soul will be returned to that body and they will live forever. 
The Mishnah says there are those who will not be resurrected. But what does it mean they won't be resurrected? It means that body will not come back. We're not talking about the soul. The body won't come back. But the soul, as we said before, which is eternal and so on and so forth, must come back, but it will come back in a different body. Not the body in which it sinned. So when we say a person can lose all his existence and all his life forever, it means the body, not the soul. Certain bodies are so corrupt, you don't want to use them again. But that same soul will come back in a different body. Now we'll understand why the Mishnah says every Jew has a portion in the world to come, and these are the ones who don't. Because the statement, these are the ones who don't, are not really a contradiction to the earlier statement. It is in fact true that every Jew will have a portion in the world to come. There are no exceptions if you're talking about the soul. Then there are Jews whose body will not be resurrected. That's not a contradiction. That's not an exception to the previous statement. And that's why the Mishnah doesn't say accept. It says, and these are the ones who won't. It's almost like starting a new subject. Because it is. The previous statement was a reference to the souls. Now we're talking about the body. There are some people whose body will not be resurrected. They'll have a different body. So the statement, there are those who will not have a portion in the world to come, is not a contradiction to what we said earlier, that every soul is redeemable. Here's another fascinating thing. One of the sages in the Talmud says, the blessing of rain is even greater than the blessing of the resurrection. Why? Because the blessing of rain comes to everybody, the righteous and the wicked. Whereas the resurrection is only for the righteous. That seems to contradict what we're saying. So the Rebbe says, in all the things we were saying before, the most sinful person, if he does tshuva, if he has a child, gives him credit, if somebody prays for him and so on, what is the effect of all of that? What does it mean that if he suffered in his death, then it replaces the punishment of... of it, what it means is that in the course of time, through many different ways and means, the sinful person gains righteousness. So now, is it true and correct to say only the righteous are resurrected? Yes, it's true. But who is that referring to? Everybody. Because in the end, everybody will be righteous, one way or another. In this incarnation, the next incarnation, somehow every soul will attain righteousness. So now we have two statements, and they're both true. Even the most sinful have a portion in the world to come. Only the righteous have a portion in the world to come. They're both true. And we're talking about the same people. They were sinful. They will be righteous. So when the Talmud, Rabbi Evu, says rain is a bigger blessing than, than resurrection, because rain is for the righteous and the wicked, whereas the resurrection is only for the righteous, that doesn't exclude anybody. But then, why is rain a greater blessing? 
because it's for the righteous and the wicked? Well, so is resurrection. What he means is, the rain comes even while you're wicked. <laughs> the resurrection you'll have only once you become righteous, which may take a few generations. So in that sense, the blessing of rain is more inclusive, less judgmental than the uh, resurrection, because the rain doesn't even wait until you become righteous. The rain comes for everybody, even while they're still sinful. Let's end on this note. We are told that every soul can be purified, will be purified, and must be purified. The question is how. So we find that there is a method more powerful than hell or purgatory. There are those who are not even worthy of entering into purgatory. They're not even welcome there. And they have to go through incarnations. But it says that a person gets to have three chances, three incarnations. If after the third incarnation he still hasn't become righteous, then they are destroyed and their soul is consumed, burnt, and the ashes are spread at the feet of the righteous. Pretty graphic. What does it mean that we can only come in three incarnations? We find uh, in other places where a certain soul was described as having come back many, many times, more than three times, three, more than three lifetimes. The righteous are reincarnated because of the good that they can do. They can be reincarnated many, many times. We're talking about a person who is reincarnated because of a sin or sins that prevent him from even going into Gehenna, into hell, much less heaven. That kind of incarnation, you get only three chances. Three strikes and you're out. What happens to a soul that had three incarnations to fix their sin and failed? Then they are incarnated into things other than human body, like fish, plants. That's their punishment. And after they go through that, then they can start the process of healing through Gehenna or there's a story about a man who came to the Baal Shem Tov. Hasidus was very new. The whole idea of a Rebbe was very new. And uh, this man was a well-known scholar, a very pious Jew. And he was a little skeptical about this whole new movement. And he came to see what it's all about. Most people who came to the Baal Shem Tov had a question or a problem. So when this man sat down in the Baal Shem Tov's room, the Baal Shem Tov said to him, what can I do for you? He said, nothing. I'm fine. I'm good. The way Americans say, I'm good. People didn't used to say that. Nobody would be so presumptuous as to say, I'm good. But he said, no, I have no problem. Um, I just came to see. So the Baal Shem Tov said, well, in that case, let me tell you a story. There was once a very wealthy man very good man in all ways, except that he was very stingy. And poor people knew not to come to him because 
he's not sympathetic. One day a stranger came to town, didn't know who was who, saw a nice house, he knocked on the door, and he said, please give me something to eat, I'm starving. And the man closed the door on him. The next morning when the, when the wealthy man got up and stepped outside, he found the man on, on his doorstep, he had died from hunger. When this man, the wealthy man, died, and his soul came to heaven, he was uh, not welcome in heaven or in hell, and he was given another incarnation. Again, he was wealthy. Again, he had a stingy personality, but it was his job to overcome it. And a poor man came and knocked on his door, and uh, he refused to give him, and the man died. Again, the rich man came to heaven, and uh, with some difficulty, they gave him a third chance that he would come back again, and he would again be wealthy, and he would again be stingy. As the Baal Shem Tev is saying this, the man turns white. And he says, did he die? Because the day before he left to visit the Baal Shem Tev, a man had knocked on his door and said, please, I'm hungry, give me something. And he had closed the door on him. And the Baal Shem Tev said, yes, he died. The man became hysterical. He said, tell me, what can I do? How can I repent? How can I... And the Baal Shem Tev said, I'm sorry, three, sh three strikes and you're out. The man pleaded and promised he would do anything, everything. The Baal Shem Tev said, three strikes, you're out. So the man fainted. When they uh, revived him, the Baal Shem Tev told him what he could do to fix it. Gave him a whole prescription of how he could rectify his. And Hasidim say it's because when it bothered him that deeply, when it reached that deeply into his, into his soul that he fainted with regret, that's a whole other story. Now we can start all over again. So we see that three incarnations for fixing a sin is the outer limit. After that, it becomes other kinds of incarnation that is not in a human being. But even then, it's always effective. So if it's a reincarnation in a plant, in a fish, in a bird, it has an effect. And the soul eventually repairs itself and regains its portion in the world to come. So now, what does it mean that those who are so sinful that their soul is consumed, burnt, and the ashes are spread at the feet of the righteous? So the commentaries on the Kabbalah say, don't you understand that is good news? The good news is that even those people, in the end, they are humbled, like reduced to ash. And through that humility, they come to rest at the feet of the righteous. That's not bad news. That's good news. That's the redemption. The redemption is that in the end, from all the suffering and from all of the... They become so humble that they are like dust at the feet of the righteous. But they are there with the righteous. It's just that the righteous are on a step higher, so they're at the feet. But they are with the righteous in the same place, meaning either in heaven or in the resurrection in the time to come.
Now the Rebbe concludes. This is very interesting. There's another quote from the Kabbalah, Emek HaMelech, where he writes as follows. A blessing on God, the God of Abraham, the epitome of kindness, who does not remove his kindness and his truth when he promises to never allow even the rejected to be lost. Because his compassion is endless for all of the things that he created. As it says, his compassion is on all things that he made. And that is the meaning of every Jew has a portion in the world to come. As it says, your nation is completely righteous. They will inherit the land forever. They are my plantings, the workings of my hands, of which I am proud. See, the Rebbe could have began with that. <laughs> you want to know about every Jew, every person being, being having a portion in the world to come? Oh, here it is. Blessed be God, the God of Abraham, the man of kindness, who never removes his compassion from those. That's it. So you see, everybody. But that would not be very thorough, would it? That would not be a scholarly dissertation. So the Rebbe takes us step by step and creates the complete picture from every angle and from every possible point of view. Now we, in our generation, at the end of history, who maybe have gone through a number of incarnations and have suffered the test of time, we might have a whole other privilege. And that is that Resurrection means a body that is dead and buried, decomposed, will come back to life, will recompose and live again. Them bones will live again. What about those people who will still be alive when Moshiach comes? Do they not get to be resurrected? That's not possible. Because a body that is not resurrected cannot live forever. Only a resurrected body lives forever. So all the bodies that had died will be resurrected, and they will live forever. And those who are alive won't. That's not fair. <laughs> that can't be. So how will the people who are alive when Moshiach comes, how will they attain the greatness or the power or the holiness of resurrection? It's not very clear in, in, the, in the writings as to what's going to happen. It sounds something like this. Everybody in the days when Mashiach comes and in the times of the resurrection who are still alive will die for a moment and be resurrected. I don't know if that's near-death experience. I don't know what that, what that means. But what kind of a death lasts for a minute? The Rebbe said often that this death doesn't even have to be physical. We were saying before that even the most sinful souls, after many trials and tribulations, will eventually be so humbled that their soul will be like ash at the feet of the righteous. If humility is what makes the difference, then the body doesn't have to die at all. It just has to be humbled. So what it means that those who are alive when Mashiach comes will die for a moment what it means is that they will die in principle. They will be so humble 
that it would be equivalent to dying. And why will they be so humble? Simply because we are so far from the events at Sinai and we've come through so much and uh, in spite of it all lasted that that itself is a very powerful degree of humility. And that humility itself is uh, sufficient to acquire a whole new existence without dying at all. Of course, we also have the merit of our ancestors. We have more ancestors than our ancestors had. So there are more prayers on our behalf than, than before. So the further we go in history, the more things work for us so that we don't have to go through that experience at all. And just in our humility alone, we will be deserving of eternal life, just as those who are resurrected will achieve eternal life. Now, why is all this part of Pirkei Avos? In fact, it is the introduction to each of the chapters as we study them. We've said many times, Pirkei Avos is a lesson on how to live beyond the letter of the law, which doesn't mean instead of the doesn't mean instead of following laws. It means going beyond the law within the law itself. So the thinking that allows us to go beyond the letter of the law has to begin with the thought of who are we, what are we, and how do we look at ourselves. And that's why we have to begin with the statement, all Jews have a portion in the world to come. If you can't handle that thought, you can't learn Pirkeiavos. Because if that thought is not comfortable, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, all, hey, I'm righteous, I work hard, I'm trying to be good, and the lousy sinner next door will have the same, what's going on? See, that's if you're thinking by the letter of the law. By the letter of the law, one mitzvah, one brownie point. Two mitzvahs, two brownie points. One sin, one punishment. Two sins, two punishments. If you come along and say, well, the righteous, the, 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 the sinful, doesn't matter. They're all going to have a portion of the world to come. What happened? Obviously, you are forced to go beyond reward and punishment. As the Mishnah begins and says, don't be like a servant that serves his master for the thought of a reward. Be like the servant who serves his master without thought of a reward. Oh, without thought of a reward? Well, then come on, everybody... Welcome everybody in. Just be part of the family. Well, what about this, you know, punishment, deserving, non-deserving? There's something beyond that. The non-deserving, fine, so they'll be embarrassed before they die. It's fixed. <laughs> but we're all family. So if we can take a look at ourselves from that higher perspective, from the bird's eye view, then we can proceed living beyond the letter of the law. But if you're stuck with this thing, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, we, them, they, what? That, that's not beyond the letter of the law. Make sense? Okay, now what are your questions? <laughs> so, right, they don't have any salt. You want to know what it's like to be in a fish? <laughs> is, that, is that what you're asking? <laughs> no, I, just want, I want to finish that thought. So when, when I think of it, it's clear to me that, you know, that that little spark still stays somewhere. So I just want to know where it goes after those three times. <laughs> It goes into the fish. I know, but I thought that it, it doesn't exist in a, I mean, 
a fish doesn't have a spark of God, like right. that one spark, that same spark. Right. <laughs> when a human soul is incarnated into a fish, it doesn't become the fish's soul. soul the fish doesn't have a soul. Okay. The soul is imprisoned in the fish. It's not part of the fish. That's the difference. The difference is, in a human body, the soul is its soul. It functions through the body. But that you get three shots at. After that, the soul is put into a body where it can't function. So how does it learn to grow? Or... It suffers. Okay. So through that, it's a cleansing. It is humbled, right. Is it conscious of... Oh, yes. So there are fish out there that have human Jewish souls that are conscious of being in, in it? Right. In what, killing them? And what? One of the reasons we eat gefilte fish on Shabbos. I'm serious. That's right, we're elevating those things through our energy that we use. Remember, the fish you eat. <laughs> That's why it comes in a fish, because it's a kosher. It's a kosher animal and can be, can be used for well, that's the first stages. After that, it gets worse. Um, and the other question is, if we're not given a test that we can't overcome, how has this rich guy been so, like, not aware three times at all whatsoever that that was his... Uh, well, it would... God doesn't tell us what our particular challenge is. God says, feed the hungry. That's not enough? So it's not like because that was his particular problem that he had to fix, God should have told him. No, you do it because it's a mitzvah. Not because this is your last chance. Because there's just a lot of people that don't know. That there's a commandment? That there's a commandment. Well, then, then it's an unintentional sin. This was not the case. This man was a knowledgeable, scholarly Jew. Also, there are some sins for which ignorance is not an excuse. A person can say, oh, not allowed to kill? I didn't know that. Not acceptable. <laughs> First of all, how could you not know that? And secondly, if you don't know that, you're really dangerous. You got to go. <laughs> That's not a good excuse. But that there's an, a commandment to give a hungry man your money or your food? There might be some people who don't know that. How are they supposed to guess? I have to give you my money? Why? I worked hard. Go get a job. Work hard. Make your own money. That I'm not allowed to kill you? How can you not know that? But how am I supposed to know that after I work a hard day and I have some money saved up, I have to give it to you simply because you, because you want it? Because you're hungry? There could be people who don't know that. Even if they heard it, it didn't register. <laughs> you know, if I have some extra money. But my, my money? So that, either you've been taught or, or you don't know. It's possible. In fact, there are people who are probably, there are people who are taught the exact opposite. They were taught not to give away their money. That it's wrong. You work, let them work. No free meals. Yeah, people actually believe that.
or raised like that. So unless you learn the mitzvah of tzedakah, you really might not know that it's a divine imperative. Yeah. The soul will certainly get another chance. The question is about that body. The problem is with the body, not with the soul. So if a body is cremated, can it be resurrected? Yes. If a body has been dead for 4,000 years, it can be resurrected. A cremated body can be resurrected. Maybe it's a little more complicated, but not by much. That shouldn't be... Uh, in fact, I mean, so many righteous Jews were cremated by the, by the Germans. They're not going to be resurrected because they were cremated? Now, we're not allowed to cremate because it's, de it's degrading to the body and the body deserves more respect. But even if, for whatever reason, a body does get cremated, it can be resurrected and it will be resurrected. But it's a sin. In fact, it's because it's going to be resurrected, that's precisely why we don't cremate it. If you don't believe that the body is going to be resurrected, then what's the difference? Knowing that the body will be resurrected gives you a whole different respect for the body. That's why it's given a funeral and it's treated with dignity, and, and that's why we don't cremate. And we don't discard even parts because we respect it. It's going to come back. Anything else on this highly inspiring subject? <laughs> One final thought. How important is it to believe in the resurrection? Suppose you don't believe in the resurrection. One of the people who are specifically mentioned as not having a portion in the world to come are the people who don't believe in the world to come, which kind of makes sense. You don't believe it, you don't want it, don't come. Why is it so important to believe in the resurrection? Very briefly, resurrection is not some little detail or some kind of a reward that comes at the end of a righteous life. It's not. Resurrection is the punchline of everything. The whole point of creation, the whole point of life, the whole point of being righteous, of doing good, of doing a mitzvah, of being nice, and so on and so forth. The whole purpose, the whole punchline of the whole thing is so that a physical being can become godly. That's why God created a physical universe with physical bodies, with physical objects, and mitzvahs to perform with those physical objects. So that the physical becomes godly. That's the whole thing. That's the name of the game. So if you behave righteously, you give charity, you avoid sin, you give up all sorts of potential pleasures because they're not right and not moral and not holy and not kosher, and then after that you say, yeah, but I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, then you don't understand what you're doing at all. Then you're not just missing a detail. Then you're missing the whole point. The whole point is that by doing what you're doing, by being good, you are creating a godliness in the physical. 
But what do you think resurrection means? Resurrection means when the physical objects become godly, they live forever. They become eternal. Oh, you don't think that's happening? Then what do you think you're accomplishing by being good? Going back to heaven where you came from? What kind of accomplishment is that? The soul goes back to being a soul. The body goes back to the earth. Finished. Finished? That's how it started. <laughs> what was the point of this whole thing? So resurrection is not another thing we're supposed to believe. It's not even a belief. It better happen or we're wasting our time. There must come a time when the physical becomes holy. That's the whole point of, it, of creation. I don't know if you said this because I just like literally read it thinking about that part. That it's really cool. It's um, God makes the physical, turns the physical into spiritual, and the Jew. Try again. Makes the, well, Start okay. again. <laughs> God makes the spiritual physical. physical, and the Jew makes the physical spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. God makes something out of nothing and we have to turn the something back into nothing into non-physical so resurrection is not another thing it's the conclusion of everything that we live for that eventually earth becomes holier than heaven that bodies become holier than souls and of course they are resurrected and live forever